Well, good morning. It's good to see you today. I encourage you to take your Bibles, if you will, to, and turn to the book of Romans, chapter 11. Romans 11, we're going to be looking at verses 33 through 36 uh, today as we wrap up our series on the five solas. It was 504 years ago that Martin Luther in Germany nailed 95 theses or protests on the doors of, castle doors of the, uh, there in Wittenberg, Germany, uh, addressing several errant things that were being taught in the church regarding salvation. And his action really ignited what we now know as the Protestant Reformation. There's been work that had been, do, been un, uh, underway even before his time, but it was kind of that act that ignited, ignited this movement that led to reform within the church where the certain leaders, pastors, theologians helped the church recover what we know as these five principles, these five solas, the word sola meaning alone. And uh, we've been walking through each of them over the past few weeks. And so this morning we conclude our series with looking at the last sola, but not least, uh, the glory of God alone. One of the best places when we think about salvation, and really that's what the, the Reformation was, was attempting and, and I think successfully did, was recover these principles that were central to the doctrine of salvation. The church had long strayed from these truths. And through the Reformation, these truths were, were, were recovered. They, they hadn't been lost. They were there all along. They were just not being taught. And so in the Reformation, these, these truths were now being taught again regarding salvation. When we looked at faith alone, uh, by grace alone, in Christ alone, all of these are really centered on how a person is made right with God. And all of, the, all of this information, all of these truths are found in the Scriptures, in the Scripture alone, not in some... Uh, papal edict or some tradition that the church had come up with along the way, but it was in the scriptures and the Bible alone where we find these truths. And one of the best places to find that detailed explanation of God's salvation is in the first 11 chapters of Romans. In fact, we, when we considered the, the doctrine of faith alone, we looked at Romans 3, but throughout the first 11 chapters of the letter to the Romans, Paul expounds in great detail how sinners, both Jew and Gentile, can be saved, can be right with God. And by the time Paul gets to the end of these 11 chapters, not the end of the letter, but the 11 chapters where he's really just unpacking and plumbing the depths of God's glorious salvation, he breaks out in a hymn of praise. These familiar words maybe to many of us this morning as we hear now Romans 11 verses 33 through 36 where Paul says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word. 
We thank you for giving it to us to reveal who you are and what you've done. As we consider now this text and as we reflect upon your glory, would you help us understand, Lord, ultimately what you're about? And would you help us to respond appropriately today? We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, this may be of shock to some of us, but the Bible is for you, but it's not ultimately about you. The Bible is a message from God from start to finish. It's a message from God about God. It's about his activity to create and redeem and ultimately renew. It's a message of salvation, but one that is radically God-centered all throughout. So yes, it impacts you, it impacts me, but it's ultimately not about you or me, it's about God and what he has indeed done. Paul ends this chapter and section of Romans, there in verse 36 with that phrase, with that sentence, to him be glory forever, amen. To him be glory forever. Friends, if we are gonna understand the Bible, if we're gonna understand the message of redemption, the message of salvation, then we must get our minds around the glory of God. In fact, it's important that we understand what glory means. What, what does this mean when we say the glory of God? I think as Christians, we sometimes just use that phrase often and, and maybe don't stop and really understand what we're saying. To quote one scholar, David Van Drunen, in his book, Soli Deo Gloria, he says, Soli Deo Gloria, the glory of God alone can be understood as the glue that holds the other solas in place or the center that draws the other solas into a grand unified whole. So the glory of God, it's, it's an understanding. When we speak of God's glory, we are speaking of the magnificence, the worth, the loveliness, and the grandeur of God's many perfections. And that's exactly what this is getting at when we think about our salvation, our salvation, the redemption you and I enjoy by grace through faith in Christ is a salvation that ultimately shows forth the magnificence, worth, loveliness, and grandeur of God to the world. So our salvation, while benefiting us eternally, is a work of God that magnifies the greatness of God. So as we walk through Paul's expression of praise, his hymn of praise here in these final verses of chapter 11 of Romans, I want us to see several reasons why God's glory must be the ultimate end and aim of our salvation and ultimately our lives. Why it's important for us to see that. So let's walk through this passage and see exactly why God's glory must be the ultimate end and aim of all that we're about. The first thing that we come to in this passage is, is a reflection of Paul and he's, and he's thinking about the knowledge of God and he says that, and he points here to, to how the knowledge of God is inexhaustible. 
Verse 33, of the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge. He's talking about the wisdom and knowledge of God here. And he's, he's just reflecting upon the depth of the knowledge of God. We need to remember that Paul, the apostle Paul, he was no dummy. He had a remarkable mind. He, he was trained in the scriptures. And he's just expounded some of the richest, glorious verses in all the Bible regarding salvation. He's gone really all in here in these 11 chapters. And as he concludes his thought, he can't help but rejoice as he contemplates the depths, not merely of God's salvation, but of the wisdom and knowledge that, that led God to accomplish this salvation. And his point simply is to assert that such wisdom and knowledge are immeasurable. This plan, a plan to rescue Jews and Gentiles over the course of human history was a plan that was rooted deeply in the mind and the knowledge and the wisdom of God. There's no way any person ever <laughs> could have come up with this plan. You think about the knowledge and wisdom of God, think about the ocean for a moment. The ocean comprises some 71% of the earth's surface. It's massive. When you look at the globe and the earth, most of it is blue, it's water. It contains the largest living space on the planet. It has the deepest canyon, it has the largest mountain range. It's so big, the ocean is so big that our minds cannot fathom hardly its depths. There are places in the ocean, many places in the ocean, no one has yet to explore. There are creatures that exist that no one knows about, much less have even seen. And you, you think about that, you think of just how big and massive the ocean is, and yet it's measurable. It can be measured in cubic feet or meters or however they measure water. Like it, it has, it, it's contained. It's enormous, it's massive, but yet it's contained. It, it can be measured, even though it's beyond our understanding. Well, that's not the case with God's wisdom and knowledge. His wisdom, his knowledge are beyond measure. Too deep to exhaust. So vast even that even the angels are in awe of who God is and what he's done, particularly in the work of redemption and it's uh, Peter, in reflecting, uh, as he reflects upon the glories of salvation in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10, Peter writes, concerning this salvation, so concerning the redemption, the grace of God, the prophets, he says, who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. And then he says this, things into which angels long to look. Imagine that. Our salvation, the plan of God to redeem the nations is a plan so massive, so, in, so amazing that even the angels, the glorious beings God's created, long to look into it. 
I mean, these are beings that have a front row seat before the glory of God. And they are saying that this reality about God, what he's done to save sinners is so vast, so amazing that they, they've still not plumbed the depths of it. This is also why Paul here responds in this text of Romans 11. He says, oh, the depths, the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. And he says in verse 34, for who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? He's quoting there from, from the Old Testament, from Isaiah chapter 40, verse 13. And it's a rhetorical question. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? The point is no one. Not, not even the angels know the fullness of God's knowledge and mind. God's knowledge and wisdom cannot be exhausted and yet, yet he has made himself known. He has revealed himself. He has revealed his ways. If you were to read 1 Corinthians in chapter 2, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul's talking there about these mysteries, the things that God has revealed to us through the Spirit. And in verse 12, Paul says, now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual, the natural person, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. He's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. And then he says in verse 16, for who has understood the mind of the Lord as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. God's salvation, we need to understand that this tension, the, 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 the redemption, the salvation of God rooted in the mind of God, the, the inexhaustible riches of his wisdom and knowledge. Our salvation is, is rooted in that, yet it's been revealed to us so that we can know him. While God's wisdom and knowledge are inexhaustible, we've been given enough through revelation, the Bible, to know him. If I were to ask you what the highest mountain on the planet is, what would you say? Mount Everest, then you'd be wrong. It's not the highest mountain, technically. I don't know how to say it exactly, but uh, Mount Akea in Hawaii is actually the tallest mountain in the world. It's some 32,000 feet when you include what exists below the ocean, the, the, sea, the level of the sea. 19,000 feet below sea level is part of this mountain, 13,000 feet above it. It's an island in the Pacific Ocean. And we know Mount Everest is just 29,000, just a, just a small 29,000 feet. But when you compare the two, including what exists under the ocean, Mount Akea is the largest. It's the tallest, 32,000 total feet. And when I thought about that, I was thinking that's a it's kind of how, how this is regarding God's knowledge and wisdom. He reveals some of it 
Just like you can see some of the the mountain above the surface of the ocean, and yet there's so much more below the surface that, that we can't even see it, much less comprehend it. That's how it is with God's knowledge. I don't, I, don't, I don't want us to think, when we think about his knowledge being inexhaustible, that, that it's not something we can even try to, to, why should we even bother with it? It is inexhaustible, but he's revealed everything we need to know. God's knowledge, his wisdom, the very thing that, that, that drives salvation, that has ordained salvation and brings it about is rooted in God's mind. But the second truth that we see is that his ways are unsearchable. Not only is his knowledge inexhaustible, his ways are unsearchable. Go back to verse 33. He's talking about the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. And then he says, how unsearchable are his judgments and inscrutable his ways. So now we've gone from the wisdom and knowledge of God to the judgments and ways of God, his activity, his, his work. God's wisdom and knowledge leads him to act in human history through his judgments and through his ways. So looking back throughout the course of human history, we see the activity of God. We, we may not understand everything that's happened or why it's happened in that way, but, but even as things have unfolded and even as they are currently unfolding, what we know is that God is still at work. In verse 35, Paul asks another question. He says, who has known the mind of the Lord or been his counselor? And he goes on to say, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? In that question, he's using another Old Testament text from the book of Job in chapter 41, verse 11. He's quoting Job 41, verse 11. And that verse in Job is at the end of Job when God is challenging and somewhat rebuking Job. Job has suffered a lot. It's a book of suffering. He, he suffered tremendously. And throughout the book, Job has demanded an explanation from God why he suffered so much and God has remained silent. In fact, it's a whole nother sermon series, but God never gives him an answer as to why he suffered. But Job was demanding it. And so when God responds, part of his response is this verse. It was given a gift to him that he might be repaid. Like, Job, who, who do you think you are? So when Paul uses this verse here, he's saying the reality of all that God has revealed in his redemptive purposes is a work where God is owed nothing. Salvation is not built on a system of merit, nor even a system of fairness. That might get me in trouble, but it's just true. Salvation is not fair, it's grace. Grace isn't fair, it's a gift. God doesn't kind of look at you and say, okay, let me see, you're doing pretty good, so I'm gonna give you this. It's not how salvation works. Salvation is a gift of God's grace, and as we look back upon God's gracious work of redemption, no one can say, hey God, I really owe you one here. That's just not something we can say. God's ways are mysterious in many ways, 
just think about the, the, the narrative of scripture, how he worked in the Israelites, how he chooses Abraham. And this one nation, Israel, to reveal his purposes to the world, how he's grafted in the Gentiles to be recipients of grace, and how all of this depended upon a work to be accomplished through a man born of a virgin. It's truly amazing. Because when we think about how God's ways are unsearchable, it's not only true with salvation, it's true really in all of life, isn't it? God's secret will is something we only get mere glimpses of as he unfolds his purposes in this world. You know, hard things will often come into our lives and we wonder out loud sometimes, what is God doing here? Like, what, God, what are you doing? Or maybe nothing much is happening in your life and your thought is simply, is God doing anything? Brothers and sisters, the reality is this, God is doing thousands upon thousands of things constantly. The great hymn writer, William Cooper, put it well in his hymn, God Moves in a Mysterious Way. The hymn says, God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep and unfathomable minds of never failing skill, skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter and he will make it plain. God's work is often mysterious, but when we realize even partially what he's done in us by redeeming us, our response should never be to try to pay him back. Our response is to rejoice as Paul does here. Paul doesn't get to the end of Romans 11 after thinking about all that God's done to redeem sinners. and says, okay, Lord, Lord, what can we do to somehow give you payment for all of this? No, he, he simply erupts in praise. And friends, that should be the same response. When we think about the ways of God, our response is to simply worship him and to keep trusting him and to follow him. His ways are unsearchable. Number three, his work is incomparable. Paul ends his reflection here in verse 36. After he's thought about the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God and then the judgments and ways of God, responding with these questions from the Old Testament, who could be God's counselor? No one. Who could pay him back? No one. And then he says in verse 36, for from him and through him and to him are all things. He couldn't be any clearer at this point. He's saying God is the source of all things. He is the means by which all things are accomplished and he is the end of all things. The source, the means, the end, for from him are all things. God created the world out of nothing, speaking it into existence. Everything that exists has its existence because God brought it to pass. For from him are all things. God creates. Through him are all things. Listen, God is not the passive God, little g God, of the deist who believed God to be the great cause of all things and then simply sat back and watched things unfold. No, God is active from beginning to end. 
He's very much involved in sustaining the, the world to serve his purposes. One of the things I, I like to do, I don't do it often, but one of the things I like to do, usually when I have to take the dog out, and I, especially if it's a clear night, I just like to look at the stars. I don't know anything about astronomy, right? I don't know what star is supposed to be which, and, and sometimes I think I see Mars, but I'm not sure. Somebody maybe you can help me with that. Just love to look at the stars, and, and right now I'm told I think through November, you're, you're able to see the Orionid meteor showers. Anybody out there looking at night? Any, any astronomy geeks here? Well, tonight, forget the candy, just go out and look up, look up in the sky. And, and supposedly every, every hour you could see 20 to 30 meteor, meteors, is that what they're called? Just flying through the sky. Let me know if you see it. Supposedly, you're able to see some 10 to 20 meteors zip through the, the night sky every hour. These meteors are known as some of the brightest and fastest meteors you can observe. In fact, they're the remnants of Halley's Comet, which takes some 76 years to, to go around the sun and, and come back where we can actually see the comet. Now, now all that just kind of blows my mind and, and shows us just how amazing, that's just a little, little glimpse of the cosmos. But the point of that is to simply to say God is sustaining it all. Right now, God sees you. He sees your work week, this past week, what's coming up. He, he knows your day. And he also knows exactly where Halley's Comet is, is whirling around the sun maybe right now. We can't see it, but God can. We just see the little remnants that fly through the sky tonight. But God sees that, he sees you, he, he's sustaining the universe as well as the blade of grass that all of this rain caused to grow this week. Through him are all things. He is the great sustainer for from him are all things through him are all things. And Paul says, to him are all things. All of, the, all of this exists to him, for him. The purpose for which God created the heavens and the earth is God's purpose and it's for God's glory. Friends, we need to understand that God is the source the means, the sustainer, and the goal of everything. Therefore, he is to receive glory. That's why Paul concludes in verse 36, for from him and through him and to him are all things, to him be glory forever. To him be glory forever. So what does all this mean for you and for me? If the great end of all things, including your own salvation, is the glory of God, then how ought that truth, the glory of God, impact our lives daily? Number one, it means we should live by faith joyfully. Live by faith joyfully. Paul was a man who radiated with joy, with praise, with worship. As he contemplated these truths, he erupts in praise. As a man who was clinging to God, by faith. If we were to turn back to Romans chapter four, as Paul is unpacking the glories of salvation to be received by faith, 
in verse 20, as he's, as he's speaking about Abraham, he's talking about Abraham being our father and the example of what it looks like to have faith. He, he says of Abraham, verse 20, chapter four, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. His faith in the Lord was a recognition that he was dependent upon the Lord for the Lord to sustain and fulfill his promises as he had spoken. So, friend, if you are here and, or you're watching and you've not put your faith in Christ, maybe you're exploring Christianity or maybe you've thought that if you just attend church enough or do enough good in the world that somehow God will grade on the curve and let you in. Well, friend, the only way in, the only way to know God, the only way to be saved is to embrace his promises through Christ. Believe that Jesus is the savior of sinners, that God sent his son into the world to be the savior, to live a life of righteousness and die a death on a cross as a substitute for sinners taking upon himself the full weight and judgment of our, that our sin deserved. And if you put your hope in Jesus, the savior, the one who has made a sacrifice for sinners, then you will be saved. And when you believe in the gospel, when you believe in Christ, you are bringing glory to God because you're not trusting in yourself. You're trusting in God who promised. You're trusting in the one who made the way for you. When we respond to the gospel by faith, our faith is actually a way for God to be glorified. Saving faith is a recognition that we're not trusting in something else or in ourselves, but we are trusting in the complete work of God to save. So friend, live by faith. And as you live by faith, you are bringing glory to God. Take God at his word and believe in him. And as you do that, he is glorified. And Christians, as you, as you live out your life in joy, you're, a, you're, you're an example of that. You, you live a life by faith in the son of God. Live by faith joyfully. Number two, worship in humility. What Paul demonstrates here is, a great, is this great doxology which is the proper response to God who is rich in grace. Paul worships. I mean, this is some of the richest theological truth regarding salvation you will find in the Bible, compressed into one little place. Romans 1 through 11. And when Paul gets done, that's a lot of, that's a lot of writing. And when Paul gets to the end of chapter 11, he, he doesn't take a brain break. He doesn't say, I need a cup of coffee. He doesn't sit back and relax. He doesn't say, I need some self-care. No, he erupts in worship. He, he rejoices. Saying, God, you are amazing. You are lovely. You are more than we could ever fathom. To you be glory forever. Brothers and sisters, that's what we seek to do each and every week when we gather corporately, and yet we can each and every day do that as we spend time meditating on the riches of God's grace. 
When you think about all that God is and all that God has done, the right response is worship. Number three, we're called to serve God faithfully. As Paul concludes in this great hymn of praise, he's not finished. Been a good little ending there, right? Verse 36, would have been good. But there's four or five more chapters that he pins after this. In fact, he goes on to write chapters 12 through 16 to describe what a life that's transformed by this grace looks like. Verse one of chapter 12, Paul says, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, as I think back upon these past 11 chapters and all of this culminating in the glory of God, as I think about all of this, then I'm now appealing to you in light of all of that grace for God's glory, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to what? Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable, which is your spiritual worship. Friends, the, the glory of God is not merely a theological truth for you to, to sound smart by talking about. Christianity is not about how smart we can sound, but about how faithful we can live in light of the grace we've been given to the glory of the God that's given it. Again, Peter understood this quite well as he penned his letter there in 1 Peter, in chapter four, verse 10, he's talking about spiritual gifts and he says, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. And then he says, in order that, in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Peter understood that the salvation that God has given to sinners is a salvation that transforms sinners into faithful stewards and servants, gifted, equipped to be sent and mobilized and to be faithful stewards of God's grace. For what purpose? for God's glory. So yes, your salvation is for the glory of God, but also your service and your faithfulness is for the glory of God. Salvation, salvation is revealed to us in the Bible, the Bible alone. There's no other authority, there's no other book, there's no other there's no other place, there's no other source from which we understand God's redemptive work. It is in the scripture alone. And it's in the scripture alone that we see clearly that we are saved by grace alone, not by works, not by, by doing, but by grace alone, through faith alone, by us believing, receiving, putting our hope in Christ alone who did everything necessary for our redemption and as such all the glory is God's alone. John Calvin, he was one of the great reformers. 
he preached a sermon series through the book of Job, some 159 sermons. In the very first sermon, very first sermon he said, this simple phrase. He said, it is a good thing, a great thing, a wonderful thing to be subject to the majesty of God. Brothers and sisters, that's what your life is about. That's what your salvation is about. It's about being subject to the majesty of God. This story, this true, inspired, infallible, and errant message that God has revealed is not about you. It is about the majesty and the glory and the supremacy and the amazing character of God who loved the world so much that he sent his son to redeem it for his glory. So brothers and sisters, let that be the story of your life, that your life would be a life that is subject to the majesty of God and the glory of God alone. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for reminding us this very day that all that we are, our salvation, our lives, everything is about you, it's for you, it's to honor you. And Lord, right now we may even come to this moment and, and just maybe we're, we're thinking of ways that our lives have not brought glory to you. Lord, my prayer is that even now that we would find your grace sufficient to meet us where we are, to cling to a crucified and risen savior who paid the penalty for our sin that we might find forgiveness and renewed hope. Father, it may be that there are some in this room or watching even now that have never put their trust in Christ. Maybe they've been trying to somehow hope for the best, or to somehow achieve a right standing with you by doing good in the world. And it's nothing wrong with doing good in the world, but Lord, we can do all the good in the world and it will never gain us a right standing before you because of the depths of our own sin. So Lord, would you help them to realize today that their only hope of being right with you is by grace through faith in Christ. Would you lead them, Lord, would you move them to put their hope in him and him alone and to be transformed radically by that grace? Father, it may be that as we come together as your people today and we think through these truths and we think about your glory, maybe we realize very quickly or throughout this time together this morning that our lives are not bringing glory to you. It could be a variety of different things going on in our lives, some active, some merely just out of complacency, where we are not pursuing your glory above all else. Father, would you meet us where we are? And would you help us to confess and repent and to, to seek to live lives that are eager to live for your glory? Father, you are glorious. Our salvation is for your glory and for our good, yes. So Lord, would you help us to respond today 
and continued faith, continued faithfulness, that you would be glorified. We pray this all in Jesus' name, amen.